Ambrose wrote at a time when um, there were great challenges to the Christian faith. Uh, the Arian heresy was, was uh, a pressing challenge for him. But also as the church uh, went through this stage, these various stages whereby uh, Emperor Constantine um, declared Christianity the official religion, and then a later Emperor Julian tried to take it back to its pagan uh, roots, and then it, uh, well, there were a lot of changes that were going on. Eventually, um, Rome would, would uh, be attacked by outside forces, and its strength and power would diminish. And so you heard some of that, uh, some of those ideas that were reflected in his prayers as he was looking to the majesty of God and the power of God as uh, there was chaos around him and, and the challenges that he faced. So that was um, what I read, and I, I do commend that. The other things I have up here, you've seen a few times. Um, this book that I've read from over the last few weeks, Creeds, Confessions, and Catechisms. Um, I want to talk about the last one, Catechisms, briefly, um, which are a tool that uh, are for the instruction, for instruction of the faith, usually used by parents with children. Um, at least the, the Reformation era catechisms that we're familiar with, which have a kind of question and answer format. And um, there are a great many historical ones. Uh, for example, the Westminster Larger Catechism, which, um, which uh, Presbyterians would use. You would, you would read your children a question, what is the chief and highest end of man, being the first question. And they would learn to memorize this answer. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. And they would store that up in their mind, and then under it you have a series of uh, Bible verses that um, show you that this indeed is uh, biblical teaching, right? And so I, I know Philip does this, and he says he wants to do his questions, and that's what he's talking about. And it's a, way, it's a great way to uh, teach your children to train them up in the uh, fear of the Lord. Uh, this year I, I, I'm going to use this with my children in homeschooling. It's called the New City Catechism. It has 52 questions and answers, and um, you, you would see it's, it's going to sound very much the same as some of the old um, historic ones, uh, but it's going to have um, uh, updated language. So question one is, what is our hope, our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Romans 14, 7 and 8 would be the verse that shows that to be true, but um, that sounds very much like uh, the Lutherans, uh, the catechism, the, uh, what they particularly use, but it's updated language, and uh, very nicely, uh, there are songs that are available that put that to music, which is one of the reasons why um, we're going to use that this year, but um, I'm not going to teach them to sing, but my, my wife is musical and will. <laughs> she just found that out. Um, Lastly, uh, I have up here um, a New King James Version, and I'll, uh, when we come to it in the text, I'll talk about why. I do want to um, just introduce some ideas to you, some, some challenges that we face when we read Scripture, uh, mainly surrounding questions about like, why does my translation say something different um, uh, than yours. So, so we're taking up our study in Mark chapter 9 again, and we've taken a few weeks off as we've considered confessions of faith and creeds, um, and we're going to be in verse 30 to verse 50. So let me read there from Mark 9, verse 30 to 50, and then we'll look more closely at these various passages. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone 
to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, that text is, um, it has a number of things that are confusing and challenging uh, as far as, at least for me. Uh, but I think it will be helpful at, at, at the first stage if we take a step back and think about the bigger picture of what's going on in Mark, especially because we've taken a, a few weeks of hiatus from studying Mark. And um, I do want to do this with reference to some of the other Gospels because um, I, I, I find it personally extremely helpful to consider the big picture of any literary text, any, uh, any book of the Bible, but certainly the Gospels. That's one of the things that you notice is there, though there are a lot of things in common, there are also a lot of differences. There are a lot of uh, differences in, um, in primarily in order and structure and the way that the gospel writers um, present this, um, this uh, gospel narrative. So when you, when you think about the, what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels because they all are very similar in, in many ways, and John is rather different in its structure and its organization. But even when you look at those synoptic gospels, uh, there are also quite a few differences. And we're going to start to see some of those as we work through Luke's gospel in the morning. Right now, we're in a place, we're, we're almost in the same place as we are in Luke in terms of parallel passages. Next week, we'll cover some of these passages in the sermon in Luke, from Luke's uh, parallels. Um, we're almost in the same place, but after uh, this week, we're going to see kind of um, a departure in terms of the, the, the big picture, right? So, 
what, keep, what has all the synoptic gospels, what they all share in common is that they, they by and large present Jesus' Galilean ministry in the first half, or in some case the first third, and then they have a journey to Jerusalem, which could be very short or it could be very long depending on the gospel writer, and then they present his ministry, what, what he does in that final week as he comes into Jerusalem in the second uh, half or the final third of the book. And we're in the midst of that middle section, that turning point that starts with Peter's confession in Mark 8, verse 27. You remember he confessed Jesus as the Christ, and uh, Jesus affirmed that confession, and then he gave the first prediction of his death and resurrection. And Mark 8, 31 then, through Mark 10, 45, is kind of this middle section, uh, the hinge of this book, where you have th- it's, 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 it's built around three predictions of his death and resurrection. Now, Matthew and Luke also have three predictions of his death and resurrection. And Matthew, very similarly, puts them in, in relatively uh, close connection from, say, Matthew 16 to Matthew chapter 18, roughly speaking. But for Luke, in his case, the first two are in, in Luke chapter 9. We're going to come to the second of those two today in our sermon. But the third is not till Luke chapter 18. And what you see in Luke is that he draws out Jesus' journey to Jerusalem over a very long portion and, and, and puts a lot of focus on what's happening as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem for the final time. And so what, the gospel, what each gospel writer does, what each evangelist does, is he has the ability to zoom in and focus on certain aspects of Jesus' life and ministry and um, move more quickly over other aspects of his life. If you come to John's gospel, you see that uh, Jesus goes back and forth to Jerusalem a few different times. Um, and uh, John, rather than recording um, Jesus' Galilean ministry and focusing on that primarily, John prefers to focus on things that happen around major feasts in his three-year ministry. And then he puts a lot of attention, not, just, not to Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, and not to the things that happen in Jerusalem uh, during that final week, but particularly the things that are said and the things that he does in the upper room uh, around the, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, whereas the, um, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, really don't put a lot of attention on anything but the institution of the Last Supper and some of the predictions that attend that. John uh, speaks at length about Jesus' teaching in the upper room and then the final prayer. So you could see that there's, there's a kind of a different focus that they put on, uh, each gospel writer puts on the life of Jesus, drawing attention to different details, different experiences. So when we think about Mark then, um, we see that Mark um, will move rather quickly from this central section to, uh, to um, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And we're going to find that right there in chapter 11, verse 1, with the triumphal entry, uh, right after he heals blind Bartimaeus from 1046 to the end of that. But here in the central section, John is, or sorry, not John, Mark is teaching us the nature of discipleship in light of what Christ came to accomplish. He's teaching us the nature of the discipleship in light of what Christ came to accomplish. And it's structured around these three predictions, but one of the, really the overriding theme has to do with uh, highlighting the misunderstandings of the disciples, misunderstandings concerning Jesus' person and what he has to do, but also misunderstandings concerning themselves 
and the role that they should play. And it also uh, highlights Jesus' teaching whereby he redirects them to think in a new way. And we're really going to see that here in, uh, the, in the first three um, passages that follow his second prediction. In the second prediction here, Jesus says very much like what he said in the first prediction in chapter 831. Where there we said he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In that first prediction, uh, Mark tells us what he was saying, but not uh, in in a quotation. But here we're going to get a quote in verse 30 of chapter 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, Son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And we already saw their misunderstanding, and Mark just reminds us of it. They don't, verse 32, they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So we see a picture of their misunderstanding concerning the person of Christ and his work, the the necessity of the cross in light of their confession that he is the Christ. And that really does, like I said, frame this larger section, that, that recurring idea. We're going to see how that misunderstanding manifests in, um, in their interactions and what follows. So let me ask you, let me uh, invite your, uh, your interaction. If you were to look at, um, think about the, the three narratives. They have uh, questions about who is the greatest. They have uh, John raising an issue where they see someone exercising demons in Jesus' name. And... Um, they think that this is a problem because this guy is off on his own and not following them. And then you have Jesus giving some lengthy instruction about not leading a little one astray. But what are some of the things that we've, in, in what I read and what you see as you look at the text, that um, you see shared in all of these three narratives? So themes or ideas or even words and phrases that kind of pop up again and again. Is there anything that, that you notice? Oh, we, we keep seeing this idea. Shout it out or anyone. He's pointing, and how is he, what's one of the ways in which he points them to humility? Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to see that, and that, that theme is going to be, uh, that's a continuous one in this central section of Mark, the, the significance of humility, the significance of service um, at, in, in, in Christ-likeness. Um, all of it, we, we start with the, that idea of take up your cross that we, um, we recall from, well, we, we, were, we, we saw it in Luke last week, and a few weeks ago we saw it in Mark, uh, where our value system is being reframed in light of the coming of the Son of Man and the, the glorious coming that is. And then um, uh, you've got Jesus, uh, well, you've got the disciples kind of embarrassing themselves when they can't uh, exercise these demons. They've 
they've done this before, but they can't do it now. And they, you know, they're, they're kind of humiliated in all of that. They're arguing with people as they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And that carries on through. We'll see it later where James and John, uh, they, they want Jesus to grant for them to be on his right and left hand in the kingdom. This common thread of they're proud and Jesus is teaching them to be um, humble and to embrace a life of service. So, yeah, absolutely. What else? What are some of the object lessons that Jesus frequently uses that recur? And we'll see it again when we come to chapter 10. What does he do in verses 33 through 36 after, um, after they, uh, through 37 even, after they uh, uh, reveal, you know, after it's revealed what they were talking about? He grabs a child, so, yeah, he grabs a child. Now do, so the question then is, do children feature in uh, other passages here as well? That's right, in chapter 10, let the little children come to me. They try to stop the children from coming. There's another one in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And so you see this repeated thematic use of children in his teaching whereby he's on the one hand commanding his disciples to become like children and on the other hand he's teaching them to um, by, you know, by using children as an object lesson he's teaching them uh, not to regard themselves so highly. Right? Children would not have been highly regarded in society. They would not have been regarded in that time as whole persons. Um, they would have you know, been thought of in, you know, almost like at the same category as a slave or um, just some, some very low class category until they reached their majority and came into adulthood. Then this person is uh, you know, considered a you know, person worthy of attention. But as a child, not so much. So Jesus is Actually, he's, he's turning their attention towards the least and not to the greatest. Um, and that's part of his, uh, this regular object lesson that, uh, that, that uh, occurs. Um, what else? Uh, we we kind of we talked about it a little bit in the concept of humility. What do you see as a, um, as a theme that happens again and again in the interactions of the disciples, what they're, what, what's going on? You had to use one or a word or a couple words to describe what they're doing amongst themselves and with others. Bickering. Bickering. That's a good one. Conflict. Arguments. Absolutely. Yeah, so the first conflict there in verse um, 33, uh, how would you describe that? Yeah, in, in your own words. Yeah. Yeah. What what kind of things might ha- might lead? Uh, let's say just reflect on the broader narrative where we've been in recent uh, passages. Might lead them to sit, to to start this discussion of who's the greatest. Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's three guys who are cer probably certain that it's, it's one of them. <laughs> Peter, James, and John are, are pretty sure it's, it's definitely going to be us, uh, one of us, and let's figure out who, you know, who it is now. We don't know that for sure if that's the nature of the argument, but um, uh, given that James and John uh, will stick their feet in their mouths in a similar way in chapter 10, there's a good chance they were part of it. Um, but also, when, you, when they come down the mountain, think about that too, is, is the, the disciples, the nine who are remaining, they're beside themselves. They're just, they're a total, total mess, remember? They can't exercise this demon. They're in an argument with the scribes, and um, Jesus is the one who comes and fixes all these things. And um, so it, it must, it's, it's impossible that it could be any of the nine, right? Now, how would you respond in such a situation if you were one of the twelve? Wouldn't you want to, if you're an ambitious person, wouldn't you want to, like, pull up your bootstraps and, and, and try to be better so that you can get up into that upper echelon like by your own strength and by your own power and maybe assert yourself, maybe with just a little bit of pluck, you'd, 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 uh, you'd get your way into that, that primary seat. Um, you'd probably be very much like another 12, the 12 brothers, uh, sons of Israel, right? Uh, Jake, uh, fighting with one another, um, quarreling with one another. And you remember how Joseph, at the end of that, in Genesis, tells his brothers, don't fight with one another on the way as they go back to Israel. Oh, anyway, so uh, I think, at least I can sympathize um, with the way they're thinking. We tend to measure ourselves against one another. Um, every day when, you know, you see someone else who experiences a bit more success than you in whatever, whatever arena that you would like to experience success, Maybe they're, um, they're more prominent. Uh, maybe that someone has a, received a promotion at work. Um, uh, maybe just life is going better for that person. Maybe they've got more stuff or more comforts or um, their children seem to uh, have it all together. You can go on and on down the list. We measure ourselves against each other and we we always want to strive to kind of be on top, at least on, 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 by some metric, whatever metric we value. We want to assert ourselves and, and place ourselves on top. So hopefully you can, you can similarly sympathize and relate to the disciples, not because um, they're not wrong, but because we ought not to um, think ourselves greater than them either. You know, we ought not to make the same mistake unwittingly by saying, well, these dimwits, I would never do that. I'd be humble. My dad used to joke about the guy who, uh, who got an award for being the most humble and then had it taken away for wearing it the next, day, the next week. Um, we, we always have to be aware of ourselves that um, our propensity to pride is great. We have all kinds of uh, uh, ways in which we exalt ourselves, um, uh, even convincing ourselves that we're actually being humble. And even in that, we're still exalting ourselves. True humility is not about um, ridiculing ourselves. It's about looking away from ourselves. It's, about, it's more self-forgetfulness is a way to think about it than uh, self-deprecation. So the disciples know, they, they know that they're wrong because when Jesus says, what were you discussing on the way, in verse 33, they kept silent. And the reason, of course, is because they had argued with one another and focused on that word argued. There, there's that conflict. They'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
So Jesus has his, his, is his want. He sits down and he calls the 12 to instruct them. Let's look at these various instructions uh, one by one. First, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So you take this first statement and it's, it's pithy by its nature. It's meant to be easily remembered. I think anyone, having heard that, could now uh, repeat it at least uh, in, a, in a very um, uh, reasonable paraphrase. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, he must be servant of all, right? You want to be first, you got to be last, you got to be a servant. You all can remember that. It should be fixed in your mind now. Even if you can't quote it verbatim, you don't worry about the conjunctions and that. The, you want to know the concept, the idea. So he teaches them this. But it, it, it doesn't make any sense, you know, from a human perspective, from a, uh, the perspective of a natural man. If anyone would be first, if you were to rephrase this in, in a 21st century American corporate setting, how would you say, how would you finish that sentence? If anyone would be first. Crush, crush the opposition. I like it. That, I'm not surprised Tom said that. <laughs> crush the opposition. He, he must crush the opposition. Absolutely. That's what... Uh, so, you know, Tom, you're ready to run for politics. You have my vote. Uh, no, but that, isn't that the way that we see our politicians work, is you crush the opposition? What, what's another way? If anyone would be first, he must be... Just any thoughts? There's, there's not a wrong answer, per se. Just what your, your perception of our culture. He must be better than everyone else. Smarter than everyone else. That's right. Whoever's smartest will be first in some settings. Um, and if you're not, if someone's not very smart, then they come, come up with another way to be better than, stronger than everyone else. Harder, working harder, you have to work harder than everyone else, right? Have, have uh, you know, be more of a go-getter, be more uh, energetic, more industrious. If anyone would be first, he must assert himself, right? All of these ways, I guarantee you can go to a self-help section of any bookstore you can go on uh, LinkedIn and look at what people are posting. And basically, you can boil down the message to, if you want to be first, this is how you do it. You assert yourself. You work hard. Uh, but Jesus says, if, you if, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is an amazing uh, way of just completely shifting our paradigm. The way Jesus shifts up the, the paradigm of his disciples is by... Uh, telling them that the way to be first is to race to the bottom. Race to the bottom, right? Uh, in, in terms of service, in terms of uh, humility, they're, 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 the idea being there's no task that's so low that it's beneath you. There's no uh, person that's so low that you can't serve them, right? And w what's the proof? What's the proof? Think of Philippians 2. Who knows Philippians 2? Who is first of all? Who is first of, of all? Christ Jesus, is he not? Exactly. That's right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. So Philippians 2, I'll just read it. it this is, the, this is the, the reality that should shape our paradigm as Christians. It's, it's right out of what Jesus is predicting in his predictions of suffering and, and death the suffering and death of the Son of Man. And when you hear that phrase, Son of Man, if you're Peter at this time, you think Daniel 7, you think of one who receives dominion and power, 
and glory from the Ancient of Days. You don't think of humility. But Philippians 2, verse 4, uh, starting in verse 3, in fact, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's the principle. What's the, how is the paradigm shaped? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, the idea of being a thing to be used like a tool for his own uh, benefit. Uh, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, he just says a word there. He did not empty himself by uh, putting aside his deity and not being God anymore. He never, ever stopped being fully God. The text tells us how he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking, by taking something to himself. That is, by taking a human likeness, by taking a human nature uh, to, into his person, so that he took the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So don't miss that final verses there. That's part of the paradigm. In his willing uh, humiliation, in his willing emptying of himself, he went as low as one could go, all the way to the cross. We've seen he tells his disciples, take up your cross and follow me, right? He goes all as low as you can go. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. No one is first in the kingdom because of his own works, his own righteousness, his own wisdom, his own strength. Only, one is only first because God exalts that person in his sovereignty to the place that he should choose. Now, I'm not saying that we should be just adopting a new way of trying to seek a greater rank. I'm saying that Jesus has, has pointed us to a, a, a real and true paradigm, that exaltation is ultimately and finally the only final and everlasting exaltation that will ever be accorded to any human being is one that God and God alone works. He has shown us very clearly the one who, will, who I will lift up, the one who I will exalt, is the one who humbles himself. And Jesus is the, is the, um, the prime example of that reality. He humbled himself from the highest heights to the lowest depths. And he calls his disciples to do likewise. And so that, um, so just the point, this, this simple phrase, if anyone would be first, he must be last, of all and servant of all. Though it makes no sense in our culture, in our world, it makes sense within that paradigm, that reality that we know concerning the eternal Son of God and his willing, um, his willing uh, humiliation. So then he takes the child as an example, verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms. You see this, the, the way that Mark describes it vividly, um, you know, you see Jesus' uh, uh, affection for this child. He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name 
receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So there's a second paradigm-shifting uh, statement, because in our world, uh, we would be a lot like the disciples. Children are to be seen, not heard. They shouldn't be in the place where we are when we want to do adult things and think hard and, and, um, and accomplish major things. You know, they, they don't belong um, you know, in places like uh, places of power, the White House, whatever have you. We, that's not where they belong, right? We want to push them out. Um, and we, you know, I, I don't think that we go so far in this in saying like uh, in demeaning teachers, but we generally, you know, we, we would regard, say, a professor at a university as a much higher uh, rank in society than a first grade or kindergarten teacher, right? It's just the natural way that people think. Um, but Jesus is teaching another uh, different way of thinking. is one who receives a little child in my name. There's a key there, in my name. You're going to see that in my name a lot in, this, in these texts. In my name will come up again and again. Doing this action in the name of Christ, you're receiving Jesus. You're receiving the one who is most glorious of all. Right? So imagine if, I'll put it another way, um, the president sends uh, an emissary, a diplomat, overseas to another country. Right? That diplomat comes into um, uh, another uh, ruler's um, presence. He represents the president. And, and that diplomat will be received as one who represents the president and indeed perhaps, uh, in, in his case, the United States of America. And so he'll be accorded honors, not on because of himself, but because of whom he represents. So here... Jesus tells us that by, by receiving these lowest, these children who are the, uh, the lowest in society in that, in that culture, in his name, we're actually receiving him who's Lord of all. We're receiving him who's Son of Man. And he says, not just me, but actually him who sent me. Where we're talking about the, God the Father then. The Father is the one who sends the Son. So by receiving Christ who in this case, as he speaks in the form of a servant, he speaks as one who wasn't received by the Pharisees, who wasn't received by the rulers of the day, not by the Romans, not by Herod, not by the great people of that time. And he's just a, a, a hick from Nazareth, right? Not received by them. He says, but the one who receives me receives him who sent me, the God of the universe, God the Father. So, there's these paradigm-shifting ways of thinking about how we, what kind of life we ought to live, what kind of ministry we should pursue. We can apply that in every area of our life, and we must apply it in every area of our life. At work, um, I'll share this anecdote. It's not for my life. I heard um, Don Carson once talking about his time in college, and he, um, he was talking about his uh, going home one year, and he was complaining because no one wanted to talk to him, and no one was interested in the things he was interested in. It's not surprising because he's really smart and probably everyone else was normal. <laughs> but uh, he was just complaining bitterly about it. And um, his mother it didn't have a lot of patience for him. She said, if you're just going to sit here and complain, don't go back. Just stay here. But then she challenged him, but if you want to go back and you find the, low, the person, if you, and you want to be, she said, if you want to go back, you, th you want to live like a Christian and find the lowest person, find the, the, the person who no one else wants to talk to, 
You go and befriend that person. Don't complain that no one's befriending you. You go and do that. And he, he did it. And, he, and in his testimony of that event, he said it wasn't uh, four weeks before he was counted as the leader of this particular college group um, because he had embraced a, a, a life where he sought out those who were the lowest, the least, and befriended them and, and showed concern for them. I think that, that was helpful for me, and uh, it stuck with me because of that. Um, I think some of you may be able to think through in your own life similar experiences, either being on the receiving end of it or on the, on the giving end of that. So this is, the, this is the life we're, we're called to embrace if we're disciples of Christ. And it shifted. It's a, there's a paradigm that he calls us to embrace, and it completely turns on its head the paradigm that our culture would give us. So we come into this second passage here, and here we see that John says in verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. What, is there anything ironic about that? As you reflect on it, what you know? Think about John's problem and the situation as it, as it's happening, Karen. Well, John and, and the rest of the disciples. So John's problem is that here's the, here's the issue: someone's exercising a demon. <laughs> yeah, that's a part of it. It's kind of funny. They just themselves found themselves unable to do this, and here's a guy who's doing it, and they want to rebuke him. <laughs> it's, it's, it's utterly ridiculous, but it's, um, it's the way they're thinking. What's the other thing about it? Look at, just look at the simple the pronouns that he uses to describe his complaint. What's his problem? They're not following us. Yeah, us. Yeah, they're not following us, right? <laughs> it's not, you're not, they're not following Jesus. It's, they're not following us, right? There, there is still this this lingering thought in his mind like, yeah, I, I, I get where we failed, but like, we're still, we're, we're the inner circle. We're the top dogs here, right? These guys should be following us. And so, uh, of course, Jesus uh, isn't going to have any of it. I, 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 he says, do not stop him. Verse 39, but for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. I think what we need to recognize here is that we have that in my name again, that in the name of Christ. We saw that with the receiving a child in his name, this necessary qualification, that the work is done appropriately in the name of Christ. And the person's doing the mighty work. Now there's an implication in this. Does this man do this mighty work because he's, he's learned all the right appropriate methods? It's not like the movies where people know like what kind of, uh, where the water needs to come from and how to sprinkle it and all that kind of, nonsense. Who's doing the mighty work? When you see a mighty work, you should think of the Holy Spirit. You should think of the Spirit working through someone to accomplish a mighty work. Um, for the sake of time, I won't go through it. I could show you the patterns in, in the book of Acts. I could show you it throughout the Gospels. When someone does a mighty work, when someone does signs and wonders, the Spirit is the one working through that person. And the pattern is established clearly enough that when he's not mentioned, uh, we can safely assume, we can rightly assume, that this person is, is empowered by the Spirit. With the proviso, that qualification, what he's doing is in Christ's name, right? Someone might do mighty works. In fact, 
Uh, Paul and Thessalonians will talk about the man of lawlessness coming, and he'll do mighty works and signs and wonders, but he doesn't do them by the power of the Holy Spirit. He does them by the power of the evil one. Uh, someone might you know, possibly do mighty works in his own name, in, um, un under another name. That's, that person is not to be, you know, stay away from them. But this is someone who's doing it in the name of Christ. And if that person is doing mighty works and the Spirit's working through him, Jesus also teaches, he won't, he won't deny me, right? He won't soon deny me. Um, he won't soon afterwards speak evil of me. The Spirit who works mighty works through this one is not going to also, is also going to work a right testimony through that person. That's the logic, if you follow that. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, there's this idea, the phrasing is a little different, but of in, in my name, uh, again, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So we had in the first instance of this a similar statement in verse 37 of whoever receives a little one in my name, this uh, is a performance of an act that is in the eyes of the world, is of no big deal. It's like, okay, so what? You, you said you, you, you welcomed a child, a little one, right? But in the eyes of Christ, it's a big deal. You're receiving Christ, and if you're receiving him, you're receiving him, uh, you're the one who sent him, right? Same way, we have something that's like uh, no big deal. You think of in a marathon, someone standing on the side of the road, they hand cups of water to the, to the runners, and nobody pays attention to those guys, right? We're, you're thinking about the, the people actually running the race. Well, our life in Christ is, is likened to a race, right? And you can imagine someone along the road handing a cup of water, just one little cup of water at mile marker 20 to, the, to, to you as the runner. And uh, you think, well, that's no big deal. It's a little thing. Jesus says, that's not the way I think. It's not the way my father thinks. I say it truly, I say to you, there's that, he, he, when he says this word truly, or truly, truly, it's like I'm stamping his foot. I want you to pay attention to this. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Right? That, that he will, he has a certain and sure reward from Christ. What is that reward? He doesn't tell us. We don't need to, you know, we can let our, you know, leave our curiosity at bay and just say, there's a reward, Christ will give it. It's certain, and that's good enough. We'll move on. But you see, again, all, all along the way, Jesus is, is just reframing perspectives, reframing the paradigm that he wants his disciples to have as they think about uh, this life of uh, discipleship. He's going to conclude with this warning in verse 42. Uh, so if, if, it's, if, if there's this positive reward and this positive benefit to um, receiving a little one in Christ's name, to providing even, uh, even small support, even a little bit of support in Christ's name, there's this very strong warning against those who would do the opposite. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This idea of a great millstone, it, it, literally a donkey-sized millstone, meaning Back then, you would attach a donkey to it, blindfold it, and it would go around and thresh grain. So this is a big enough millstone that you need a donkey to push it. It's a, it's a big, big stone. It would be better to have that tied around your neck and you be hurled into the sea. 
than to lead, um, uh, to lead you, it's not just children, to lead a believer astray, to lead a believer to, um, into sin in some way. I, I don't think that we need to afflict ourselves in the sense of like, oh my goodness, I, have, I made a mistake in my teaching, like go overboard in that. Uh, we do need to be very, uh, especially teachers need to be very cognizant of how they teach. But um, I, I think it's more like that ge- general pattern, right? If I were standing up here and say a prosperity teacher, and I were trying to I- impress upon you this idea that uh, the Christian life is about getting lots, loads of money, uh, provided that you uh, give me 10% of it, and, you know, th- that kind of thing. That's a prosperity gospel. Um, then I would be leading you astray. And woe unto me for that. You see what I'm saying? Um, so I, I don't want you to go overboard and think, oh boy, I made a, I made a mistake. In, in, um, uh, that's not, I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think that you, know, you want your general thrust to be one that is, as you teach children, as you teach your family, as you teach others, as you make disciples, am I leading that person to adopt a Christ-like mindset, one of faith and humility and love for one another? Or am I leading that person to adopt a worldly mindset, one of love for the things of this world, one of of pride and arrogance and love for self? You see, think in these very clear terms um, and see the the better. You know, this is a common way that wisdom teachers would teach is they want you to see this is better than that. You see it all through Proverbs. Um, You see it in Psalms. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, right? It's a way of inculcating... Uh, a biblical wisdom in a person's mind and life. It's better. This is a warning, a better statement that functions as a warning. It's better for you to be cast into the sea with a huge stone around your neck than to lead a child of God astray. If your hand, it, it, it's also better. He's going to go on with some, some more statements that are very similar. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled then with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. We have these three statements stacked upon another that also, that, that this is better than that statements that are warnings. This is now turning the attention, the focus inward to ourselves. Now, this is hyperbole. Jesus is not, is not literally telling us to cut off our hands. If a teacher claims that, ask them why they have their hands still, right? We all ought to cut off our hands at some point in our life, right, if we're going to take this literally. It's meant to be a hyperbolic statement to say, take an extraordinary action. If you have something or someone that would lead you astray, take an extraordinary action to deal with that. Right, to cut off that source of sin that would potentially lead you away from saving faith. Okay, that's the idea. So if your foot, your hand, you know, that's it's not better to keep those things uh, and to lose eternal life. Incidentally, you, you I've, I've said this before. I've talked about the doctrine of hell, doctrine of eternal judgment. The, the word here is Gehenna. It's a, it's, a, it's a place where it was like the trash heap outside of Jerusalem, place of refuse. There's some who will lean on that and say, see, it's not eternal because eventually everything kind of just burned down to, to ash. 
which requires you to just focus on the one word and ignore the context. Does Jesus describe it as something that is eternal or not eternal? Just pose it to you. Is this an eternal judgment? What, what are some, some phrases that tell you, uh, I, I see Aminta shaking your head, but what are some phrases that tell you this is an eternal judgment that he's speaking about when he speaks about hell? Versus hell, you've got the kingdom of God. How does he describe hell? Verse 48 particularly. right that's right so you think of a worm as like uh associated with decay right worms will appear when things are decaying right eventually they go away when everything's fully decayed you think of smoke going up as something that will go up for a time but then the fire will burn itself out exhaust the fuel and it stops right jesus says but this is different it's like that the torment is like that the worm doesn't die Smoke doesn't stop going up. Fire is not quenched, right? It's clear, I think, when we consider the larger context. In verse 44, he refers to hell as an unquenchable fire. And I think that we ought to be duly warned by this when we think about these warnings of judgment that, that encourage us to fly to Christ, to find our salvation in him, to hold fast to him in faith, Right? There really is an eternal judgment, and it won't do to, to follow the spirit of the age that wants to find all kinds of ways of saying uh, it's not really so. Uh, you know, some will say the word hell only appears a handful of times in the, New Te in the Bible, to which, you know, I want to respond is how many times does it need to say it for you to believe it's true? Is it, is, we only believe the things that are stated three times? Well, you, you, obviously not, right? We believe all that God's word says. So... Um, in any case, there's a very, it's very clear in Jesus' own teaching, there is a judgment. It's a judgment to be feared. It's a judgment that we are to be warned of. And the solution to avoiding that judgment is to remain in Christ, to follow him as his disciples. And the thing that will surely lead us astray from following him, more than anything else, is our big head, our own pride. We get so full of ourselves, that's when we fall. God exalts the humble, but he brings down the proud. Right? The disciples are in, that, in this stage where they're in, in that kind of danger. And Jesus is graciously warning them and turning them away from this. He's graciously changing their perspective by giving them new, a new paradigm of thinking. Because pride will surely, if they persist in it, lead them to their own destruction. But the humility, humility that leads to repentance, the humility that leads us to trust in Christ and not ourselves, the humility that leads us to serve others, to follow him as a true disciple, that's what leads ultimately to saving faith. That's what will preserve us from destruction. Well, I said I'd deal with uh, some of the other books, but I'll just put it off till next week for the sake of time. Are there... Um, We'll deal with the, the, the strange statements about salt next week before we run the chapter 10. And um, let me stop by and ask if there are any questions um, from all, uh, any of you at, at the moment. Any questions or comments? George.
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but I mean, it, if I'd say there's a connection, it, there's a thematic idea of um, there's a concern for others that runs throughout this text, and there's a concern for the disciples themselves, right? There is, a, there is an appropriate way to consider ourselves uh, that's not proud, but that is duly humble. And, um, and so both things are, there's a back and forth between those. Um, and when you, when you come down to 49 and 50, you see, uh, just skipping ahead of the salt statements, which are, can be confusing, Jesus gives uh, a clarity to it at the end when he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Right? They're in conflict. And uh, their conflict is uh, about their own personal greatness, right? And so on the one hand, Jesus turns their attention towards others who aren't considered great in the world. And on the other hand, he turns them, their attention inward to see themselves rightly, and to think about their own real station. And uh, that's what's going to lead to their saltiness. Um, and it will also lead to this peace with one another where they won't be marked by conflict both within their... 12, and also without the outsiders like this uh, itinerant exorcist, right? So I think thematically there is an association, but you, you're right, there, there is also a distinction between focusing on, you know, how you, how you receive others as, as a servant of Christ versus how you regard yourself and, and respond to his word individually. Well, let's, um, let's close in prayer, and uh, then we'll prepare for the service. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your goodness to us. Father, we thank you for the warnings that you give us, which are sobering reminders and yet also part of your good grace to us. And we thank you for your great patience with us, that you endure um, our own uh, stubbornness, our own rebellion for so long, just as we saw and see with, um, with uh, Christ and the disciples how for so long he walked with them and taught them and, and trained them in amidst their misunderstandings and amidst their own pride. Um, and you are so likewise gracious with us, O oh Lord. We thank you that you walk with us and that you patiently persist in teaching us and training us and warning us. May we have soft hearts, Lord, so that we receive these warnings rightly. We respond to them. And we receive this teaching in and of ourse in ourselves planted deep within us and that we embrace this life of humility and service uh, and love for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.